Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a united group of opposition MPs are calling for an overhaul of federal access to information systems. That should be interesting. And we get into the lingering after effects of the Canadian wildfires and whether we're finally waking up and doing something about climate change. And the numbers after the by-election results show the Conservatives may start asking themselves if Pierre Polyev's approach to politics is actually turning away voters. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A united group of opposition MPs from three parties are now calling for an overhaul of federal access to information system. It's a move that's being resisted by the governing party, as you might expect. The House Committee on Access to Information, uh, Privacy and Ethics has uh, been studying this system for quite some time. Uh, They published a 99-page report on Tuesday, and uh, there was a rebuttal from the uh, the Liberals on the committee. We'll talk about that in just a couple of seconds. Uh, To uh, give us some context in this, we're pleased to welcome to the program uh, Kevin Walby. Kevin is an associate professor and former Chancellor's Research Chair in the Department of Criminal Justice at the University of Winnipeg. Uh, Professor, pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Good morning. Uh, why is it that any government that, or wannabe government uh, during an election campaign will always talk about transparency and, and ethics and, and full disclosure, and they tend to forget that about the day after they get sworn in? Yeah, that's a, a good observation. I think access to information in Canada has long been a kind of political hot potato. Uh, every party pushes the access to information button when they want to get into power. And then as soon as they form government, they kind of drop the ball. And it's pretty frustrating as someone who uses access to information for research. I think it's pretty frustrating for journalists who have long been calling for big changes to our access to information regime in Canada. And it's really something that I think is impacting all three levels of government, isn't it? Well, yeah, I think it's important for listeners to know that it, it's uh, there's a federal law called the Access to Information Act, and that provides access to information at the federal level. So anyone out there listening can make a records request at the federal level under that law. And then in every province, territory, and municipality, there are freedom of information laws that allow mm-hmm. people to make requests for information uh, for records at those levels of government. They're not exactly harmonized, but they do kind of progress in the same ways or sometimes regress in the same ways. Yeah, you're right. It's a different standard, et cetera, depending on which level we're talking about. But I guess the constant through this whole thing is is people that are in government are always reticent to share information. And I, the obvious question that people like yourself and myself in journalism are going to ask is, well, why so secretive? Uh, you know, and, and there can be a variety of responses to that, and and sometimes no response to it. I mean, they just kind of drag their heels on situations like that. It's got to be very frustrating. Yeah, I, I mean, it, there's a whole bunch of things I could say about that. When the first Access to Information Act was introduced uh, about uh, three decades or, or four, almost four decades ago, it was actually a really robust law, and then it got watered down in the final reading and made it a lot more uh, closed off. So the major reason why that was is that bureaucrats at the federal level were saying, you know, this is going to ruin our careers, it's going to make our jobs impossible. And that's why we have all these kinds of sections in the act that prevent certain kinds of records from getting disclosed. Uh, And 
I, I can tell you that I've also seen examples where government officials are actually trained on how to not produce records or trained to produce uh, very pithy records. We know that there are also cases where government workers uh, use different devices to avoid their records from being subjected to access to information. So, yeah, I, I think that we have a real secrecy problem in our Westminster uh, model of government in Canada, and we have a, a secrecy problem even at the municipal levels. I would like to see uh, government become much more open, much more transparent, but it also should be much more active, like citizens should be recruited into participating much more actively in in government if we're going to have a democracy. Where is the oversight in this whole process, Professor? Uh, you know, in other words, who would make the determination? Yeah, that's a valid request. Uh, yeah, you need to do this. Uh, that's got to be done expeditiously. Uh, it, it, is is there somebody overseeing all this stuff and, and evaluating each and every one of these requests? Uh, there isn't a single point of oversight. There's a, a few mechanisms of oversight. So at the federal level, there's an Office of the Information Commissioner of Canada. And when there's problems, you can complain or refer a case to the Information Commissioner and they can review it. And they've just gained some new powers in the last couple of years uh, to make orders, uh, which it, they didn't really have before. So that's one approach, but that only really helps like if you want to put the time into making a complaint and sometimes it doesn't help at all because that takes a long time and sometimes the commissioner doesn't rule in your favor. Uh, so I do think it would be much more helpful if uh, the access to information offices in every government unit had more resources to uh, dedicate the staff to making better decisions, to to working a little more quickly. Uh, and I think that this review uh, that, that was performed by this committee speaks a little bit to that, uh, and it, it raises some other questions too. Well, to that end, uh, you, even if you go through the process and even if, if the applicant is successful, whether it's you or, or someone else, it's, I, I'd like to see access to these documents. Uh, the frustration comes in when they finally, after, and it's usually a long period of time, they said, okay, fine, here's the stuff. And you start looking at it and, and half of it is redacted. And you don't necessarily always get a reason as to why that's redacted, do you? Well, yeah, that that is a frustrating part. Um a lot of times documents will be exempted or redacted in different ways according to different sections of the act. And uh, th there should be some amendments to FOI and ATI legislation in, in the country to open things up a little bit more. Uh, I, I guess that uh, some of these exemptions, some of these sections might have merit, but in a lot of countries they've already gotten rid of some of these kinds of exemptions. So, um, for instance, in Canada, you can't really request records from uh, quasi-public entities like uh, nonprofits, charities, which sometimes are administering public funds. And you can't make ATI requests to private bodies in public-private partnerships who are administering public funds. But I would argue that those entities should be subject to ATI too. 
because they're administering public funds. Sometimes they're administering tens of millions of dollars of public funds. So that's that would be an easy one to open that up. Uh, and there's a few others that are mentioned in this this report of the Standing Committee. So where do we go from here? I mean, the, the report's there, uh, and uh, I, I guess it becomes part of the parliamentary record. In other words, the government has to respond in some way, shape, or form to it now, don't they? they this can't just go sitting in a bottom drawer somewhere. Well, the report itself is kind of interesting because it, it is from a kind of oversight committee, and the oversight committee is predominantly conservative MPs, and they're raising a lot of interesting valid points about access to information. And they're kind of put, trying to put the liberals in a political vice grips and trying to you know, suggest they're not going far enough in the recent changes that they did make with Bill C-58. And I, I agree with some of the changes, but I don't believe that um, the, the opposition parties are really like genuinely interested in these changes. Uh, because they're calling for things like declassification of all documents, getting rid of ministerial and cabinet confidences. I mean, to go back to your original point, these kinds of things have been asked for for every uh, by every opposition party since Mulroney. Uh, so, uh, and then you have Preston Manning, you have uh, Cretchen, you have all kinds of opposition people asking for this. And then when they get in, they never implement it. So it's really interesting to see the same kind of rhetoric appearing in this report. And, and again, I, I don't think it's really genuine. I think it's access to information, again, becoming the, the political football or the hot potato, people trying to score political points off of this. And what I'd really like to see is just a government go further with changes to access to information. And it is the liberals who should be doing that right now. The liberals made actually quite a few changes with Bill C-58 a couple of years ago, but they didn't really go far enough. And I've published on that. They have digitized the federal access to information system. They made a few other minor changes, but uh, I mean, some of these points in the report are valid and I'd like to see some of the exemptions taken away. I'd like to see some other entities added to the schedule of the act. Um, so it, it is a really interesting issue. And I do think it's incumbent on the liberals to respond in some way, because if they don't, then they do look like they are inept on the issue. This, and, but as you mentioned, it, it's too often become a political football, though, hasn't it, Professor? Uh, and it's a, it's an Achilles heel for any governing party, whether it's conservatives or the liberals, uh, because as soon as you say, no, you can't see that, they're going to say, what are you hiding? You know, what's why can't the Canadian people understand? You know, it's just, and, and, and there may be a legitimate reason for it. I mean, you and I both studied, you know, issues about confidentiality, et cetera, in government. And, and some things are better left not seen by the public. I mean, there can be some, some security issues, uh, national security issues, any number of different things like that, that, that probably are not for, for general consumption here. Uh, but you don't know that. And that, that I think only exacerbates the problem where people are saying, look at what, what, what's going on here? What are they trying to cover up? Maybe nothing, maybe something that, that, should be as as we've seen. Heaven knows we've seen enough documentation uh, uh, through the investigation south of the border with the former president, and some of that stuff is not for human cons or national consumption. Uh, some of it is very germane to the discussion too. So I, you need you need some guardrails here, and you need some clarity as to what we can and cannot do here. Uh, 
And, and I'm concerned, as, as you say, that even the oversight process here uh, could use a little tuning up. Yeah, I, I, I think that we could have a lot more open government at the federal level, at all levels of government, and still have some parameters for what information is withheld. Uh, and there is a catch. The government that does that is automatically going to be more uh, wide open in terms of scrutiny than any uh, other in the history of Canada. Because if, if let's say the liberals did go ahead and, and strike uh, the section on cabinet confidences and ministerial meetings, for example, right, right now, you can't really get records that pertain to members of cabinet or ministers or even vice ministers, junior ministers. As soon as there's a meeting, if you invite someone from a minister's office to it, well, then I can't get the meeting minutes from that meeting because someone from a minister's office is there. If we struck that down, then the government that opened that up would immediately be subject to really intensive scrutiny like never before. So that's why no government... (laughs) ever has the political will to do it because then it, it's really going to make it a tough road for them in the next election. But if we want to live in a democracy, if we want uh, citizens to really know what's happening with government, if we want things like procurement to be uh, transparent, then I think some government has to have the kind of ethical core to make that hard decision and open everything up. Not everything, as you said, like maybe national security, uh, maybe a couple other kinds of records. Sure. But we can have a lot more open government. And I'd I'd like to see a government, maybe the liberals, uh, push further in that regard. Well, I guess it's all going to be put on hold for now. The the house rose yesterday, and they you know go into their Christmas or summer break, so it's not going to be until probably sometime in September, October before this issue even comes up again. But it's going to be interesting to see uh, just how they do respond to this, Professor. Uh, thank you so much for the time and for your insight into this. I really appreciate it. Okay, well, thanks for looking at it. Thank you. Uh, that's uh, Professor Kevin Walby from the University of Winnipeg. Uh, and more discussion on that, as we mentioned, probably come fall and uh, to see that just how they're going to respond. But again, the frustration here is is they make this a political issue. Uh, you know, we, I, I, the opposition members, the conservative members on that committee, really, truly concerned about this, about transparency and open mind. Or is it just, you know, trying to score some political points? Uh, tr- their their track record indicates probably the latter more than the former, but uh, we'll see how the government's going to respond. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've seen the spring more than probably ever before uh, with the wildfires that have has had such an impact on the economy, on our health, etc. And uh, the good folks at uh, Leger Marketing have done some uh, research and uh, the results uh, maybe are indicating a trend that that we're starting to understand exactly what's going on on our planet and that it can have some long-reaching impacts. And uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Andrew Enns. Andrew is the Executive Vice President of Central Canada uh, for Leger. Uh, Andrew, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Uh, Terrific to be back, uh, Bill, and uh, happy to join you. What's the questions today? 
Well, let's talk a little bit about wildfires and the impact that it's having. Uh, and, and I know that you did some work, of course, uh, with uh, it, the folks at Environment and Climate Change Canada about what was going on. And, and I know that the, one of the frustrations that they've had over the years is a lot of people still don't seem to understand the correlation between uh, what we're doing or what we allow on this planet and the impact that it can have on it. Uh, but your numbers indicate uh, that maybe Canadians are finally starting to understand that there is a linkage uh, between things like wildfires, floods, et cetera, like that, uh, with uh, some of the things that are going on with environmental issues. And and it's kind of like a cause and effect thing here, isn't it? Well, uh, you know, you're absolutely right, Bill. There is uh, some, uh, some, some connection, some correlation when you look at people's uh, concerns around climate change. And we asked a couple of questions in our, uh, our last poll at Leger. Uh, you know, uh, you know, how concerned are you about climate change? Uh, and we found, um, you know, 67% of Canadians say they're concerned. Um, you know, 66% in your province, uh, a little higher in, in Quebec and, and uh, British Columbia at 73%. And then the interesting thing, and I think the point that you're sort of uh, getting to, uh, Bill, is that when, when you ask people about sort of the the frequency of some of these weather-related events, and we, we listed quite a few um, you know, these things that are occurring more, more now than before in their perception, you see a connection where, where people are more likely to say these weather-related events are happening more often when they have these sort of uh, concerns about climate change. So there is this connection between, uh, between the two. And, and uh, um, you know, and I think it's, uh, that's something that's going to be part of our, our public opinion landscape for the foreseeable future. Well, and this past spring, I guess, really, Andrew, is a great example of that. Uh, you know, this is not the first time we've had wildfires, of course, sadly. You know, a whole town in, in B.C., Lytton, B.C., just burned to the ground a couple of years ago, of course, uh, because right. of the intense heat that was going on. But, you know, and you think, okay, there's going to be some air quality issues, you know, probably around where that fire is. But did you ever in your entire life think did you ever see a, a pictures like we saw over just a couple of weeks ago with that brown haze over New York City and, and from, from yeah. fires that were here in Ontario and Quebec? Uh, that, and you, I think that really makes it come home and, and, and show us exactly how de- devastating these things can be, that something like that could travel all the way down there, down the east coast of the states for that matter, too. And, and one of the reasons why I'm, I'm always interested in talking to, to you guys at Leger is because your polling covers both countries. I mean, you're talking to Americans and Canadians about these sorts of things, aren't you? Yeah, for sure. And in, in this poll that we're, we're talking about some of the results, we did uh, we did sort of ask the questions we asked in Canada. We asked it to a thousand Americans as well. And in, in on, on a number of these questions, you see basically uh, – very, very similar results. You know, we asked, uh, you know, have you personally been impacted directly or indirectly by the forest fires happening in Canada right now? This was uh, going back about, uh, you know, a week and over a quarter in Canada said, uh, yes, they had been much higher. No, no surprise, much higher in Ontario. Uh, you know, I was in Toronto for a few days when when you had those smoky days. Yeah. Uh, and, and in Alberta. And but the interesting, you know, to your point, Bill, 23% in the USA said said the same thing that they've been uh, they've been impacted by you know by the by the current wildfire season so far and you know I say season we're man we're only a month really we just started summer yesterday <laughs> so yeah it could be a long one well, and that's what some of your uh, respondents said, wasn't it? That they're anticipating that this is this is the start of something, and that they're anticipating there are going to be more fires and more impacts because of these fires. 
Yeah, we three quarter over three quarters of our respondents in Canada said that uh, they they feel that we're we're experiencing wildfires more today than we've uh, than we have ever before. Poor air quality, uh, smoke. Sixty nine percent said it was more today than before. Uh, temperature variations. You know, there's a lot of things. Now, I will say this, Bill. Um, I think in the past decade, decade and a half, weather has become a really interesting news story. Uh, you know, in terms of the reporting, we've got more advanced technology, so we're able to track and get into these things. And so, you know, to some degree, this is a bit self-fulfilling in terms of we are really talking about it more, but we have lots more to talk about, I guess, right? Well, it, it, let's look at Alberta. I mean, you know, they were, of course, the, the, the location for an awful lot of these wildfires over the last couple of weeks. Uh, and now they've got flooding. Yeah. Uh, it's just one thing after another. And we one fo- seems to follow another in situations like that. And, and uh, you know, I think, like you said at the, at the beginning of our conversation, people are starting to get it that, hey, there's something going on here. And, and we can't just listen to uh, some of the voices that said, oh, come on, we've always had flooding. We've always had fires. What's, what's different this time? Uh, I guess the short answer to that is the frequency that they're occurring. Well, I think, Bill, I think for sure there's a frequency. And as we just talked about, a lot of Canadians think these things are happening more often than they were before. But I also think that the other thing that, uh, and we, we didn't directly ask this, but, you know, we do have in a few little data points, the the extremes. And, and you just touched on a really interesting example. I mean, a month ago, you know, the community of Edson was under evacuation orders because of a wildfire. And last week, um, they were they were on evacuation order because of a flood. These are the these these extremes and and these you know we're we're hoping for rain, and suddenly we get like forty days and forty nights of it. It's it's just uh, I think that's the troubling, and I think that's sort of when you think about climate change. I think for a lot of people, that's where it's starting to to click a little bit. That you know things are changing, and and this is what we have to prepare for prepare ourselves for going forward. Well, I, I always use the example. Remember, I think you and I had this conversation some months ago. Uh, years ago, there was a movie called Inconvenient Truth, and it was actually former Vice President Al Gore that was kind of narrating it. And he was one of the uh, the first folks that maybe wanted to make climate change a, a big issue. And a lot of people just kind of poo-hooed that and said, come on, you're exaggerating that stuff. That's never really going to happen. I mean, that that computer-generated scene of, of New York being underwater, come in. Come on. And and yeah. they were dismissive of it. And what was it? Two years, three years later, Hurricane Sandy goes right up the coast and, and hey, there's New York City underwater. Uh, it's yeah. it's climate change. And I think that that brings it home to people when they actually see it in real time as opposed to computer generated models. Yeah, no, I, I agree. You know, I'll, I'll leave. I don't know how much time you got, but I want to leave you with one question we asked, because I think it's kind of an interesting sort of perspective of what we need to start, you know, following a bit. So, how, so, okay, climate change, we asked, you know, how people are, are worried or not, but we had a question here. Do you think it's still possible to reverse the consequences of climate change? Yes, there's still time to reverse the consequences. We can do something. 51% of Canadians feel that that's still possible. 37% feel it's, uh, it's already too late uh, to reverse the consequences. And then we've got 12% who don't believe in, 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 in climate change. So you still got that that's you know smallish uh, yeah. rump, but but that's sort of the interesting thing now is is um, you know how do we respond to these things? You know how do we prepare and, and how do we you know how do we challenge uh, you know meet this challenge going forward? Because 
look, uh, you know, weather extremes are happening. You, you can't miss them. You know, ask the people in Edson. Now it's just a matter of how do we prepare well, exactly, or mitigating circumstances like this. And I mean, we know already that uh, that this is going to be an extra hot, dry summer. And you know, we've we've had all the meteorologists tell us, you know, okay, El Nino is there, and you've got uh, this stuff and the polar ice caps, and 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 again, but it's something to the abstract, I guess. You know, for most of us, figuring, you know, things don't really change a whole lot here in southern Ontario, for instance, but now they do. And and yeah. you know, yeah. in, in now that we're seeing we're seeing this in real time, the yeah, it is getting hotter here, uh, and well, and yeah, you know, we're we're feeling it and we're feeling the impacts on it. Well, and I think you know, to your point, I think some of this conversation around climate change, when I cast back even around the times of that inconvenient truth, uh, you know, documentary. I mean, the, the the discussions around what climate change meant was exact, you know, the shrinking polar ice cap. Sea levels mm-hmm. might rise by two or you know two to four inches. Temperatures might be might be on average two two to four degrees hotter. On well, for the average person, Bill, it's like it doesn't like first of all, I don't know what what the polar ice cap is now. Like I don't know what that really. What's the impact on me? Those those numbers don't seem that to to the layman. I would suggest, Bill, don't seem that devastating. But now. Fast forward to the consequences where we felt in terms of the smoke, the wildfires, some some historic flooding. I think now we're starting to really feel it and go, oh, hold on. You didn't tell me about these extreme weather swings and, and changes. This is different. And and maybe that's what we're uh, we're starting to see, uh, you know, sink into the public opinion psyche. And, and the impact that it has, too, because what I guess that has done, and I know you guys at Leisure have done pulling on this, too, is, okay, now you've accepted that. Okay, you understand that there is a linkage here between what we're doing with our planet and, and, and the climate change and the impacts on everything, on our economies, on our health and everything else. And we're going to talk about that later on in the show, too. It's not just that, hey, it's a little hotter than it was last summer. Uh, it's, it's going to be more difficult to grow crops. It's going to, you know, there's a number of things that can happen once the, yeah, that temperature changes. And I, cause I hear the same reaction that, that you guys got in some of your polling, Andrew. Uh, so the, yeah, the temperature goes up a degree or two. What's the big deal? You know, it's, it was 30 degrees Celsius. Now it's 31. If the, the global temperature goes up, it has huge implications. And I think sure. now that's all starting to happen. So th- that was the takeaway when I started looking at your numbers uh, from this polling yesterday is that I think more and more North Americans, Canadians and Americans that you talk to are finally understanding that uh, that we've got a problem here. And we it, it's not all man-made, but a lot of it is. And, and it, you, the numbers here indicate that of uh, the folks that you talk to to, to do your polling, a lot more of them seem to think that there's a correlation between man-made stuff and and what's going on than there was even a year ago yeah no i i i think so and and i think you're right i mean i think that's really you know there's really has to be sort of a parallel sort of uh, approach to this one is we have to keep doing what we can do to try to you know manage the uh you know the, the 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 pace of climate change you know clean energies new technologies but on the other at a parallel side uh, track uh, bill we have to start looking at what this means in terms of our economies. Like, how do we, like, we can't keep, we can't keep, you know, paying billions of dollars to repair, you know, public infrastructure that's suddenly, you know, washed away. We have to somehow get in front of these things and, and, and understand how to manage some of the, some of the impacts. How do we, how do, how do farmers in, in Western Canada and, and quite frankly, Ontario for that matter, what do they need to do in terms of adjusting the kind of crops or their planting, uh, you know, uh, habits as things change, right? I mean, 
you're suddenly dealing probably, I would say, if you talk to an, an agronomist, they're suddenly going, we're seeing some new pests, uh, you know, some new, uh, new fungal uh, activity and things like that, that we don't typically see, but guess what? We're that degree warmer is making it, making a difference. And, you know, our economies, uh, we still have to, to live and work and, and, and make money and pay taxes here and, and whether the climate changes or not. So I think that's the, 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 the probably for me, I'd say the bigger challenge, I'm, you know, the climate's going to keep, keep uh, throwing, you know, mother nature will keep throwing what it does at it, but we just have to be prepared. Well, that's why it's always fascinating to read the, the work that you guys do at Leger because you're, uh, it's, it's a moment in time, but you guys capture that moment sure. and capture the, the mood of, of where we are and what we're thinking about it. Uh, and it's always fascinating to, to have these discussions with you. Thanks so much for this today, Andrew. Really appreciate it. Uh, I, uh, I likewise enjoy the conversation, and hopefully it uh, generates a bit more among your listeners. I hope so, too. Have a good weekend. We'll talk soon. You bet. Take care, Bill. Bye. Andrew Renz, Executive VP of uh, Central Canada for Leger Marketing. And, and it's just, I was just saying to Andrew, I mean, the, you know, they, they talked on both sides of the border here, so you get a pretty good sense. Uh, because when it comes to climate, and notwithstanding what some politicians seem to think, uh, climate issues don't stop at the border. All right. You know, the air is up there. The atmosphere is up there. And, and if it's happening in Alberta or B.C. or northern Ontario or Quebec, yeah, it has an impact on New York State and, and down through Michigan. Of course it does. And uh, and so there has to be a mutual understanding, I guess, that, that we've all got to address these issues. And, you know, you can't just turn your back to it and think, oh, it's going to go away because it doesn't. It gets worse, as we're seeing this year. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about a very pointy piece that was in the uh, Toronto Star just the other day. This is, of course, a big week in, in federal politics. They just, the rose yesterday, they're on their summer break. But uh, there were by-elections, four of them, earlier this week. And uh, mixed reaction. I mean, the spin doctors were crazy about this, that is starting as soon as the polls closed, really. You know, this was going to be a momentum changer, et cetera. And, and there's a certain aura about by-elections anyway. Uh, in the middle of a term that uh, that some people, I guess, have certain expectations. And I, I don't think anybody uh, actually realized those expectations. Uh, the Conservatives won two seats. The Liberals won two seats. That may be the headline, uh, but there's a lot underneath that that needs to be discussed, too. And uh, our next guest did that uh, in her column. Susan Delacorte is a national columnist with The Star. And the headline is Pierre Polyev's divisive approach coming up short with voters. And uh, Susan talks with us right now on the Bill Kelly Show about that and the, the implications of it as well. Susan, great to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for this today. Nice to be back, Bill. Thanks. Let's talk a little bit about about what we saw. And like I say, the headline is uh, it was a saw off. You know, they, they they got their two seats back, the meaning Polyev's team, and the Liberals won two seats as well. But as you mentioned in the piece here, what went on during those campaigns and and the results of this are, are very much part of the story here, especially uh, even though the Conservatives won their two seats back and, and were able to maintain uh, their their presence in those two ridings. Uh, how they got there was a rather circuitous route, and, and uh, there, was, uh, there was some ugly times in, in both of those campaigns, wasn't there? Yeah. Uh, it, you know, politics is, has not been sort of great this uh, it's, this uh, winter and and spring it's been pretty nasty in the house and so naturally the by-elections were going going to be nasty as well too um so the biggest fight i guess the the one that that claimed the most oxygen actually was out in um portage lister Mm -hmm. in manitoba where maxine bernier people's party 
uh, former conservative cabinet minister, was running himself as a candidate um, against someone chosen by the um, by the conservative headquarters here in Ottawa, a guy named Brandon Leslie. And the goal here from the, the Pierre Polyev's conservatives was to get rid of this People's Party threat once and for all, to to crush Maxime Bernier because Bernier stole a lot of votes from conservatives in the 2021 election. He uh, he seized on the anger and frustration of of COVID, especially and um, and lockdowns, and and managed to do that in a way that probably cost the conservatives some support. So symbolically logistically, mathematically, it was very important for the Conservatives to get that back from, to, to make sure Max was defeated. He was not, he, Max was defeated, but he got 22% in 21 and he got 17% uh, this time, which isn't, they, they didn't vanquish him. Also, in the final days of that campaign, um, the Conservative Party itself on official campaign literature was appearing to mock um, Mr. Bernier for uh, being an ally of the uh, gays and lesbians and pride. So it, they, they circulated a, a photo saying, with Maxime Bernier in a, a pride costume saying, this is the real Maxime Bernier. So you don't have to look too far for homophobia in that. So... Anyway, that, that leaves a lot of scars. And there was also all this talk in that by-election about the World Economic Forum, at, mm-hmm. which, you know, the far right has seized on as a global cabal, you know, running the world. So it, it was way out there, the, that campaign. I, I wrote in the column, they wanted to win in the worst way, the conservatives, and they did. You know, they... Um, <laughs> uh, it, it wasn't uh, an edifying spectacle and it didn't get them uh, much more support than they had already. That's, you know, uh, anyway, they, they do have a new MP in the house, but how he got there and, and the things that were said during that campaign is going to hang around. And I think several people were commenting on Twitter is that the liberals have plenty of material for future campaign ads from what the conservatives were retailing there. Well, it, and that's uh, the fascinating part about it, because that's, let's face it, by all uh, concerns, it's a safe conservative seat. I mean, Candace Bergen had that seat before that. It's been it's been a conservative seat since the beginning of time. Uh, the the campaign, as you mentioned, even Polyev showed up to campaign in that thing. It was personal for him, wasn't it? It was, it was Polyev against Bernier. It had nothing to do with trying to maintain that seat. Yeah, and, you know, what you do to defeat Maxine Bernier is maybe take the, it, it, it seemed the, the conventional wisdom out there was, you know, go as low as you can. And that has resonating effects sort of across the country too. Um, Fred Delory is a former national campaign director of the conservatives and he stayed up late after the by-election he was telling me and wrote a piece and it was a, a real lament for how the party had done. It basically dropped its share of the vote in three ridings in on, um, on Monday night. And that's not what you would expect 
if you were sitting here inside the Ottawa bubble, where it seems the Conservatives have got the Liberals on the ropes every day, and there's all this talk of foreign interference, and the Conservatives have really seized the issue of inflation and cost of living, and running against a tired, accident-prone government this, uh, this last six months, Fred Delory and other Conservatives said, you would have expected the Conservatives to have been reaping the bonus from this. But instead, the Liberals increased their vote share uh, in, in many writings, not, not in uh, Montreal, but, but the Liberals did better than expected. And they made it the race in Oxford, uh, not far from where you are, um, mm-hmm. competitive and interesting. We saw the Prime Minister going down there and Christopher Freeland. And uh, the Conservatives won with 43%. But the Liberals increased their vote share from 20% in that riding in 2021 to 35%. So that, that's a big gap. You know, Again, there was a, a very local, internal Conservative Party fight there over the nomination, which meant that the old MP, Conservative MP, actually endorsed the Liberals. But that was a, a nasty race, too. And the linking theme in those wins between Portage La Prairie and Oxford, even though the Conservatives won, the internal divisions within the party are stopping it up short. And I lived through the 90s when a divided Conservative movement meant Liberal victories forever. And I, I certainly think that's on the minds of Trudeau and, and the Liberals now. They, they like a Liberal Party, that is, a Conservative Party that is at war with itself. It, what's interesting about this, too, is that historically when there's a by-election like this and there's an unpopular government and the Liberals, let's face it, have, been, have taken their share of body blows. And it's it's been reflected in just about every polling you see. And especially with the prime minister, you know, dipping into the into the negative numbers almost when hit with his personal polling, you expect the electorate is going to punish that government. You know, we're going to send a message to these guys. And I, I got to think, Susan, that there were some people within, you know, the conservative brain trust that were thinking, you know what, maybe we can steal one or maybe even both of those seats. And because that's how angry people are. Well, as you say, the, the liberals increased their vote total. And, and the two liberals that did get elected there, Ben Carr and, and Anna Ganey, are both very, very strong supporters of, of the prime minister, uh, you know, with personal you, you ties to him find, as well. Yeah, you couldn't find stronger. Uh, yeah. Anna Ganey is a personal friend of uh I was saying earlier in another podcast this week is I wrote an ebook on Trudeau back 10 years ago. And when it came time to interview the family and, uh, and handle those requests, it was Anna Ganey who did that for me. Anna Ganey was the one who organized interviews with members of the Trudeau family and it, they go on vacations together. They are very close. Um, her husband is uh, Justin Trudeau's digital guru, Tom Pitfield. So they are, Anna Ganey is as, pretty much as close as you can get to Justin Trudeau, and she won handily in in uh, Notre Dame de Grasse in Montreal. Uh, again, there was a family connection in Winnipeg South Centre too, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Carr's the late Jim Carr, uh, very well liked on all sides of the house. Uh, he died tragically um, last year. His son Ben won in Winnipeg South Centre. That's an urban kind of riding that the conservatives need to have their their eyes on, and they didn't do well. They uh, Ben Carr increased the share of the votes that his father had. His dad won in in twenty one with forty five percent of the vote, and Ben won with fifty five, and the conservatives were kept to twenty three percent in Winnipeg South Centre. So 
Um, you know, we've seen in the House, the, the Liberals have been having fun with this by-election results, Trudeau calling them devastating and underwhelming and Liberals mocking the Conservatives. But I would say, and judging from columns like Fred Delory's, um, Conservatives are taking a good hard look at is there is the brand of politics they're practicing really, really personal, aggressive, nasty when they need to be? Is that working for them or is it turning people off? And it's Mr. Delory's view. And I think um, several conservatives will tell you quietly, it's their view that uh, this is turning off as many voters as it may be turning in. You know, people who hate Justin Trudeau are already voting for Pierre Polyev. Sure. One assumes um, that visceral kind of hatred. It's the 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 mocking and 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 uh, of liberals, the the ridicule, the the over the top rhetoric comes very close to insulting people who voted liberal. And you don't want to. It's fine to insult your opponent, but if you're insulting the idea of voting liberal, uh, that can make some people nervous. Well, that's one of the old things. I mean, in this business, in broadcasting, you know, one of the first things you learn, and that was a number of years ago for me, is if you're always negative, eventually people are going to get turned off. And I mean, you know, you can go down the list. Howard Stern used to be like that. His last book, he said, I was an idiot. Uh, and I had to find to come to that, that kind of epiphany. Uh, Pierre Polyev just turns people off. I mean, as bad as Trudeau is in the in the in the, the polling these days, uh, they still don't like Polyev. I mean, and, and I don't predict uh, you know the, what's going to happen in the next election, but I think as you mentioned in the column, Susan, what happened this past Monday kind of indicates that you know the the stories of the the Liberals' demise may be a little uh, early, and uh, Justin Trudeau knows how to win elections, and and he's down, but he's not out, and he's not out until you count him out, and uh, I, I think. The, the conservatives might have been just a little bit smug over the last two or three months, figuring they had these guys on the run. And they've, they've got to right now maybe rethink, as they say, their attitude towards how they're approaching some of these things right now. And Paul has personal style, too, which I think is still going to be questioned. You know, my, my spouse and I were talking just over the weekend. Gives you an idea of things we talk about, about um, people who have successfully rebranded themselves. And I think actually the biggest success on that score has been the premier of your province and mine, uh, Doug Ford. Mm -hmm. You know, Doug Ford was a pretty polarizing politician when he first came in and first won the, uh, the leadership of the conservative party, but he is a very different kind of conservative now. And he was rewarded with an even bigger majority in the election. Doug Ford spends more time with Justin Trudeau doing joint announcements than he spends in Pierre Polyev's company. And my colleagues, Rob Benzie and Stephanie Levitz wrote a, a great piece uh, about a month ago talking about the schism between Pierre Polyev and Doug Ford. Doug Ford is the kind of conservative that Ontarians can get behind. And I'm not, uh, it, it might be worth Pierre Polyev's time to spend some time with Doug Ford and, and learn at his feet because he's, he's, um, he, he managed to turn himself into a, a brokerage kind of politician. Well, yeah. I mean, did you ever in your lifetime think you were going to see Doug Ford in the same photo op with the, the president of Unifor and Leuna and, and you know, and labor yeah. unions that it's just, come on, what's going on here? Uh, but he's, yep. you know, whoever was, you know, saying this is the way it's got to go. He listened. Uh, and you know, I, I don't know what Polly was going to do. I, the, 
they just when you've got an abrasive style like that, you just have to ask yourself, uh, you know, are, as you mentioned in the piece, are we are we alienating more people? And yeah. that, which is not necessarily meaning they're going to drive them to vote for the liberals. They may just stay home if they're conservative supporters. And that's just as bad. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the turnout in these uh, by-elections was bad for all, everyone. Yeah. There, there wasn't one of them that cracked over 50 percent. Portage Lisker was the only one that got it was 45 percent. The rest were about a third of the electorate voted. And that's. That's not that unusual for by-elections, but it, it, it is a, another sharp reminder to all the political parties here that all of the sound and fury you're making here in Ottawa, and I, I emphasize sound and fury, uh, is not resonating out there. That people are far more interested in a Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau standing up and announcing a car battery plant than they are seeing Pierre Polyev and Justin Trudeau arguing over China's infer, uh, interference in foreign elections. It's, it's, it's not resonating out there, this debate that has dominated Parliament Hill. And I don't, I don't think it was even much discussed in any of the by-elections. The, people are far more concerned about jobs and the cost of living and, and politicians who are doing something rather than just yelling at each other. Well, exactly. And and I think that's the message to be taken away. And, and, and you've written about that over the years, too, though, haven't you, mm. Susan? It's, it's a much different world outside the Ottawa bubble, and sometimes they they, they forget that. Yeah. I, I, I always remember, I think, the, the classic textbook case we got of this was in 2015, when Tom Mulcair was a very effective opposition leader against Stephen yeah. Harper, and was, if, you know, if the House of Commons was was the training ground and was was the testing ground. Tom Mulcair would have been leader. He was reduced to third place and um, forced out by his own party. Know that the House of Commons is no place to train to be prime minister. Which was interesting, and that was the criticism about uh, Trudeau when he was in third place. There, they said, "Here, he's hardly ever here." Well, he was out in the road selling Justin Trudeau, and it, it seemed I was to pay out off. there with him. I was yeah. out there with him, and I. <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget. And, and I, I'm told that Pierre Polyev is doing some, borrowing some pages from that handbook. He is out there meeting people and yeah. talking to people. It's, is he talking to people who are already conservative voters or is he looking for the kind of people that Doug Ford managed to get? That's the, that's the question. These by-elections would indicate that he's got a lot of work to do. Exactly. Susan, always great having you on the show. Thank you so much for this today. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Susan Delacourt, national columnist for the Toronto Star. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.